and welcome on in to CBS Sports Radio. It is Ryan Hickey here with you on a Wednesday. Welcome. Welcome. I appreciate you making us a part of your Wednesday right here on CBS Sports Radio. If you have missed any part of the show so far up to this point, good news for you. Don't fret. Check out the Hick at Night podcast, night spelled N-I-T-E. We are uploading every single hour of this show right there on the podcast feed so you can stay up to date with everything going on here and not miss out a thing. So check it out, Hick at Night, night spelled N-I-T-E, wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, the best news, it is free. All right, so we are four games into the NFL season. We're getting ready here for week number five kicking off tomorrow. So I figured, I know 17 games, it's not a clear and perfect quarter quarter mark, but we're going to call it the quarter poll assessment right here, right now of the NFL. So I have a few categories we want to kind of get into here to talk about the league um, and kind of talk about some disappointments, but also some impressive teams so far through the first four games. Um, and again, roughly the 25% mark of this season. Let's start with... The biggest disappointment team-wise, that is the Cincinnati Bengals. Look, they're one and three. I know, I get it, right? Joe Burrow has a calf injury. He's dealing with a calf injury. Still, though, I mean, to be as bad as they have looked so far is truly shocking. Burrow's not exactly the most mobile guy, so you figure playing with a calf injury shouldn't hinder his play that much and he was atrocious against the Titans he was awful against the Bengals or he is on the Bengals he's awful against the Browns week one even in their win uh, the lone win of the season over the Rams on Monday Night Football wasn't that pretty wasn't that impressive I am floored so far at how Joe Burrow has played again even with taking into consideration his calf injury um, and the rest of the team as well. Jamar Chase right now shut out of the end zone. Zero touchdowns. That prolific passing attack has not been very good. The offensive line is taking a step back. This Bengals team had going to the Super Bowl, winning the Super Bowl. Definitely did not envision right now. Again, even taking into consideration Joe Burrow's calf. Them sitting there at one and three so far through four games. So let's go from bad to good. Biggest disappointment in terms of team, I think, is the Bengals. Biggest surprise, in, terms of a good, in, you know, in a good way, I'm going to say the Texans. The Houston Texans, to me, so far through the first quarter of the season, have been the biggest surprise. I thought they were going to be, maybe not a shoe-in, maybe not a lock, but I would say the leader in the clubhouse when the season started to have the number one pick in the draft next year. And they don't even have the number one overall pick because they traded to the Cardinals in order to get Will Anderson Jr. But I really thought this team was going nowhere. You look at their offense, C.J. Stroud is playing right now behind a horrendous offensive line, and large Parkers are injured. But you have, like, third-string left tackles, second-string centers, second-string guards. They have no one healthy on the offensive line. So when you couple that with, look, Damian Pierce is a nice running back. I, I can't say to pretend that he's going to you know, I expect him to carry the team offensively. Dolphin Schultz, okay, tight end. Nico Collins, okay. You know, receiver-wise, there's really no one out there beginning of the year that jumped out of you that said, oh, boy, big year coming for this guy. But the biggest reason they have been right now, at least my biggest surprise, is CJ Stroud. 
I give CJ Stroud a lot of credit. I thought out of the three rookie quarterbacks taken in the first four picks, he'd be the worst. I thought he'd be the worst out of the three because you look at the situation, not only a new head coach, but a new offense coordinator. Again, we just talked about how bad that offense is on paper in terms of receiver, running back, tight end, offensive line. He has played really well. 1,200 passing yards, six touchdowns, no interceptions so far. He's been tremendous. He's absolutely been more than I think any Texans fan could have bargained for. So they're 2-2. Two and two. They smoked the Jaguars and took the, Teal- uh, took the Steelers to the woodshed. The Texans have been really, really impressive so far through the first four weeks. They, to me, have been so far the biggest surprise. If we go to the biggest disappointment in either a coach or player, I think it's Sean Payton. Sean Payton with the Broncos, I think, has been the biggest disappointment for any sort of player and or coach this year. Because you watch the, right now the Broncos through the first four games of the season. Can you really tell a difference between a Sean Payton-coached Broncos team and a Nathaniel Hackett-coached Broncos team? Because I can't. For the most part, I can't. Lack of organization last year and this year seems pretty similar to me. Penalties. Big problem right now and looks very similar to me. One of the most penalized teams last year. One of the most penalized teams this year. I have never, by the way, just in a quick anecdote here. Watching that game against the, uh, against the Bears last week. I have never seen so many false star penalties in my life. I think it was five of the time I had the Broncos had. It was unbelievable. And they all felt like they were on third down. Third and one. Third and two. Oh, there's a flag. False start. Mike McGlinchey was... You know, he was responsible for a few of them. It was confounding. There's been a lot of issues right now, discipline-wise, organization-wise. I think the downfall of the defense, well, you can't put it all on Sean Payton. I mean, he did hire Vance Joseph. And Vance Joseph has taken right now what was a top-five defense in the NFL last year and made them a laughingstock. Made them an absolute joke. You got 70 points two weeks ago hung on you. You allowed a Bears team that is just... Spinning in mediocrity right now. I don't know if they have bigger problems on the field or off the field. And you had Justin Fields play arguably his best game of his career on Sunday. Again, you won the game, Denver did, so you'll take that. But you allowed, again, a dysfunctional franchise in the Bears to actually look competent. And at times, good on Sunday against your pathetic defense. Again, Peyton, I think, deserves some blame for that because of his hiring of Vance Joseph and how that hiring has looked. Now, the offense, I'll give Peyton this credit. They are looking better. Russell Wilson, I think, is better this year compared to last year. He's much more efficient. The offense is starting to become more consistent compared to last year where they were kind of all or nothing. But still, not where you want it to be, not where you hoped it would be at this point. And at one in three... Definitely not what I expected with Sean Payton coming to town. I think not exactly what a lot of Broncos fans expected as well. They were promised a lot. Right now, a little has been delivered. And Sean Payton, so far through the first 25% roughly of the season, the quarter pole mark, if you will, of the race. Sean Payton, to me, has been the biggest disappointment when it comes to any player or coach. The best coaching job, I think, done in the NFL so far through the first four weeks. How about Jonathan Gannon? Did not see this coming. Absolutely did not see this coming. My expectations for the 
Texans were low. The only team preseason-wise that I had lower expectations than Houston for was Arizona. They have the worst roster in the NFL. No hope whatsoever. I really thought them cutting Colt McCoy and bringing in Josh Dobbs like a week before the season started was just kind of icing on the cake of them tanking the season and almost trying to ensure um, ensure their you know demise this season and ensure they'll get the number one overall pick um, come April. But to Jonathan Gannon's credit, whether the front office and whether the owner wanted the tank to happen, he has been coasting his ass off. This team has been scrappy. They they've been competitive every single week. In three out of the first four games so far, they've had a lead in the fourth quarter. They beat the Cowboys and handled Dallas in that win so far. Gannon has been a gamer. To his credit, he has gotten the most out of this roster and a guy that was laughed at. Hey, me too. I'm not going to pretend I was above that. A guy that was questioned. And a guy that really there was very little expectations for. And we were talking before the season. Their chance to be one and done in Arizona. He has really proven everybody wrong so far. And I think so far through the first four weeks, given the talent he has and given the situation he was in, uh, he was inheriting, I think he has done right now the best head coaching job in the NFL through the first four weeks of the season. How about the MVP? Never too early to declare an MVP of the NFL through the first four games, Christian McCaffrey. And honestly, what can't this guy do? Right now, leading the NFL in rushing yards, 459 rushing yards on the season. Not only is that tops in the league, he's almost 100 yards better than the next closest guy. That's how dominant he has been on the ground so far. Obviously, also adds in the passing game as well. He's a big-time weapon. Seven total touchdowns right now through four games. What's impressive about that, too, is the fact that San Francisco has so many weapons. You have CMC, George Kittle, Debo Samuel, Brandon Ayuk. Like, you have so many weapons, so many mouths to feed on that San Francisco offense, and I'm even leaving out a few legitimate weapons, that you would think, like, no guy is going to accumulate a high volume of touchdowns because, again, you got to pass the ball around and get everyone involved. And so that, to me, at least makes the seven total touchdowns through four games even more impressive with how many elite players they have at positions. He has still found a way to get in the end zone, get in the end zone a ton. To me, so far, MVP of the league through four games, Christian McCaffrey. Best quarterback, I think, through the first four weeks has been Tua. Tua's had a tremendous first, um, first month of the season. Leading the league at passing yards, 1,300. Nine touchdowns. Been super accurate, 71% of his passes completed. I know he took a little bit of a step down and it was a little bit, for me at least, of a, uh, of a disappointment last week in his performance against the Bills. Because I really thought that that would be a game where the Miami offense would keep on rolling and had their way with Buffalo's defense, even though they're really good. Don't get me wrong. It's not a slight at what the Bills' defense has been doing. I just thought really, the honestly, the Dolphins' offense was just unstoppable. A little disappointing to see the outcome of that game, especially after getting off to a good start. After scoring two touchdowns and two drives, just have that offense come down to a grinding halt. But it was definitely frustrating um, to see Tua and the offense um, struggle in the second half the way they did against Buffalo. But still, to me, again, through four games, I'm not going to allow one half to dictate and change my opinion. Through four games, Tua, to me, has been the best quarterback um, in the NFL. And finally, defensive MVP. It's been Micah Parsons. 
Guy's been, you know, one of the most unblockable defensive players I've ever seen. He's all over the field, constantly living in the ba- uh, in the backfield. Six tackles for loss, four sacks, one forced fumble. Moves all around the defense. Can cover. Can rush. Can tackle. Is good in the run game. He does it all. He does it all to me. He's the most well-rounded defensive player in the game right now. He deserves the defensive MVP. All right, speaking of the Dolphins, at 855-212-4227, just talked about what I thought was a disappointment from them and their performance in Buffalo uh, on Sunday, with, again, scoring two touchdowns out of the gate and then just scoring one touchdown the rest of the game. Liam's in Cincinnati with some thoughts. What's up, Liam? Hey, thanks for taking my call, Ryan. Oh, what's um, up, Lee? How are you doing, buddy? Oh, yeah. This is, yeah. You see, because I, I mean, I'm a Colts fan like you, you know, but Dolphins have always been my team. I'm from Florida. And so I just got to know this, though, about them, okay? Which Dolphins team can we see, can we expect to go forward? Is it the, um, is it the one that scored 70 against Denver, or is it the one that laid a big egg against, um, against the Bills? Because let's face it, everybody was picking them to go to the, to the Super Bowl. Yeah. Okay, with the way their offense was clicking and everything was going so great. You know, um, and so I just wonder, in your opinion, which which is the true Dolphins team? I think it's, I'll say it's closer. Not exactly, obviously, they're not scoring 70 points again, Lee. Appreciate the call, buddy. I think it's closer to what we saw in week three against Denver than week four um, in Buffalo. That to me, again, when you look at the Dolphins' offense and the weapons they have, now the offensive line took a little bit of a step back against Buffalo, but for the most part, they've kept two upright, and they've been really good. Even with Tron Armstead in and out of the lineup, they're prize left tackle. They've done a really good job, though, of mixing in the run game. Devon Achan has been, A-chan, excuse me, has been really good. Really good so far in the two games he's kind of really burst onto the scene in. But you have Raheem Mostert, you have Tyree Kelly, you have Jalen Waddell. Tight ends they've mixed in as well. Like They have a really loaded offense where I don't think we'll see many defenses slow them down. Buffalo did to their credit, but I think going forward here, I think it was a speed bump. I think it was a good learning opportunity for Mike McDaniel for Tua and the rest of this offense where, again, you're not seeing 70 points a game. That was one of those situations where Denver's defense stinks and you couple that with everything going perfectly for Miami's offense. You're not going to see that output. But I think you'll see, again, a uh, Dolphins offense that looks closer to the one we saw against the Broncos versus the one we saw in Buffalo. Again, get off to a hot start, two touchdowns, first two drives, and then really have the brakes slammed on them the rest of uh, the rest of that game. I do think they'll bounce back. I do think that that's going to be a, a Dolphins offense that will be continuing to be at or near the top of uh, the NFL standings in terms of yards per game, points per game. They are still going to be explosive. They are still going to be a force to be reckoned with. All right. When we do return here on CBS Sports Radio, the Jacksonville Jaguars are getting set to play their second straight game in London. I hate to say it, but I think of the end of this decade, by 2030, like we'll see the Jacksonville Jaguars permanently in London. I'll explain why we do return. It's Ryan Hickey with you right here on CBS Sports Radio. You want to scream about the games? We are here for you, and we are here for it. Ryan Hickey with you here on CBS Sports Radio. Jaguars fans might be screaming at this, what I'm about to say. I'm not a fan of it. I'm not rooting for it. I unfortunately just think right now the writing's on the wall, and that's this. I think by the year 2030, the Jaguars will permanently be playing their football in London. London Jaguars. I don't know if you got to change the Jaguars name. I don't think there are any Jaguars in London. I have no idea. London Werewolves. Whatever you want to do. 
But I think by the year 2030, the end of this decade, we are going to see the Jaguars permanently relocated across the pond and playing in London. Here's why. Look what the NFL is doing this week. Pay attention to what the NFL is doing this week. You had the Jaguars and the Falcons on Sunday. You have the Bills and the Jaguars this Sunday. For the first time ever, the Jaguars are not only playing two games in a season in London, they are playing in back-to-back weeks. Why is that? As Brian Windhorst would say, what's going on in London? Here's what's going on. This is a test. The NFL is using the Jaguars and testing to see this week and the over these two weeks, the course of these two weeks, testing to see the viability of a permanent franchise in London. That is why the Jaguars are playing two straight home games, and that is why the Jaguars are playing in consecutive weeks in London. They want to see how the fan base turnout is or how the fan turnout is when the same team is playing in London two weeks in a row. They want to see how does a team staying a week in London respond playing from one game to the next. How do the Jaguars come out after beating the Falcons last Sunday? How do they come out? How do they play? How do their bodies adapt and adjust to spending a week overseas in London to uh, prepare for another game? This is a testing ground. This is a test because the NFL is calculated. They're not going to blindly move a team from the United States to London on a whim or without truly knowing if it's going to work. And one of the ways you can know if it's truly going to work or not is doing what they're doing right now. Dressing it up as just, hey, two regular season games in London, just conveniently back-to-back and conveniently with the same team. The same team, by the way, in Jacksonville who's been playing in London every year now for what, the last decade? They are testing to see and just really confirming to make sure their thoughts that a team in London would work. And the reason why I think they're going to move the Jaguars, not expand, and we've heard you know before they're, they're thinking about it, there's been rumors of an international division, maybe teams in London, a team in Germany, a team in Spain, a team in Mexico. The reason why I think they would move a team, relocate a team, compared to expanding the league, is I just don't think right now there's enough talent to expand the NFL from 32 to 36 teams. I mean, it's hard enough right now for 32 teams to find a quarterback. I don't think you're going to add now four more teams, expect them to be competitive, when it's tough for 10 teams right now to find a quarterback that has them competing year in and year out. So I don't think the NFL is in the appetite for expansion. I think they're in the appetite for relocation. And again... It makes all the sense in the world. I'm not proud of it. I'm not rooting for it. I would like the Jaguars to stay in Jacksonville. I'm rooting for them to stay in Jacksonville. But you look at the writing on the wall. Jaguars play one home game a year in Jacksonville. Uh, in London now, excuse me. Basically, Jacksonville East. Now they're playing two games in London, one home, one away, in back-to-back weeks. This, to me, is the NFL just setting the table making sure, crossing their T's and dotting their I's to make sure fully that a London team would work full-time. And don't put it past the NFL, by the way, because their only motivation, their only loyalty is to money. And look, you talk about going to London, a lot of money there. 
You go right now to an untapped market. Loads and loads of revenue streams available for the NFL if they have a full-time team in London. I mean, you think about it, right? Like, we always keep talking about the NFL, they want more. They keep expanding. They keep, you know, trying to get more and more revenue. How do they do that? I just don't see many revenue streams left for the NFL in the United States for them to exploit. I mean, Taylor Swift's helping them out now. And by the way, why do you think the NFL is all in on Taylor Swift going to their games? Because it it unlocks a brand new market, a massive market of Swifty fans. There's a reason why they're pumping out and telling you, oh, Travis Kelsey's jersey sales are through the roof. Oh, viewership for the Bears-Chiefs uh, game last week, or I guess now two weeks ago, when Taylor Swift first made her appearance, and last week when she was at Jet Stadium or MetLife Stadium watching Jets-Chiefs, while the viewership was through the roof there, she now, or should the NFL has, at least in the moment, until this fizzles out, but temporarily has tapped into the Swifty market. And if you've seen her Eras tour, you see anything about Taylor Swift and her social media following, she has an army. Probably, right, easily maybe the biggest pop star in the world right now. That market for a long time was shut out to the NFL. And now the NFL has access to it. That's why they're going all in on Taylor Swift. That's why they're making their social media pictures and social media um, information status bars all about Taylor Swift. They are all in because they are trying to milk every single dollar they can from the Swifties right now while they are watching football. We just saw a Toy Story over the weekend, right? The first London game. Why is the NFL doing a Toy Story um, broadcast, right? Alternate broadcast along with just airing Jaguars Falcons. They're trying to get kids to become fans of football. They're like, Toy Story? Oh, well, hey, look, it's it's the NFL, but it's Toy Story. Here, kids, look. Hopefully you watch and like the game and now start to watch football more. The NFL is never going to say no to a new market and is always looking to tap into new revenue streams and get new fans to watch their game. You have a full-time team in London, not just five, not just six, not just seven games a year in London. A full-time team in London. You unlock, really, at least for the moment, the entire European continent. And that's a market that the NFL has not had a lot of access to. That's why I think this feels inevitable. To me, it's not a matter of if the Jaguars go to London. It's a matter of when the Jaguars go to London. I think right now you're seeing the fact that they are playing two games in a row, back-to-back weeks in London. This, to me, is the NFL just testing and making sure, hey, still get good fan turnout? Do fans still care? If we had the same team playing in the stadium every week, will they still care? Will they still show out? And that is why things going on right now in London with the Jaguars playing consecutive games across the pond. I hope I'm wrong, Jaguars fans. I really do. I don't want this to work. I don't honestly like watching 9.30 a.m. Eastern football games. Like, NFL Sundays to me are long enough. Watching 1 p.m. Eastern through 11 p.m. Eastern when the Sunday night game ends, it's a long day. It's a lot of commitment, you know, big time commitment. I know obviously everyone's not watching games. You're in and out. You're doing stuff. You're watching Red Zone, whatever. But there's a lot of time to watch football. I don't want to start my day earlier. I really don't. I don't want 9.30 a.m. Eastern, if you're on the West Coast, 6.30 a.m. Eastern, games to become now a norm, a thing going forward. I hate it. So I really hope the London, if you want to call it experiment, fails. I hope I'm wrong and the Jaguars are not relocated to 
London. I'm a Colts fan. I see the Jaguars twice a year. I like the atmosphere in Jacksonville. I think the Jaguars fans have gotten a bad rap in large part because the team has not been very good. So there's not been a big reason to go out to games when they're 2-14 every year. Now that they are good, now that they have a quarterback they can actually believe in, not Blake Bortles like a fraud, they actually have a real guy in Trevor Lawrence. Don't take it away. Please, I beg you, NFL, do not take the Jaguars away. But I hate to say it. Riding on the wall says, this feels like the Jaguars are going to London permanently. Again, not a matter of if. At this point, with them playing two games in a row, it seems like just a matter of when. Would you be a fan of a team in London? Is the riding on the wall here for the fact that playing two games in a row, hey, feels like the Jaguars are going to move across the pond. 855-212-4227. Would you be a fan of an international NFL team? 855-212-4227 at Ryan underscore Hickey in the number three. When we come back here, I have a major gripe with NFL and really just football coaches in general. High school, college, NFL. And three head coaches did something on Sunday that grinds my gears, gets me so frustrated that I'm here for a solution. I am here to offer any football coach advice. And it's not advice you want. It's advice you need. I'll give it to you when we do return again. It's Ryan Hickey here with you on CBS Sports Radio. Ryan Hickey here with you on CBS Sports Radio. All right, we just were talking before about the Jaguars playing in London now for the second straight game. I really hope I'm wrong here. I think for me, though, this screams the NFL is kind of using the Jaguars as a testing ground to see if a NFL team in London is truly viable. And I think it's not a coincidence that it's the Jaguars, again, a team that's been in London every single year now. And the fact that now they're playing two games, one home, one away, but both now in consecutive weeks... I think the NFL is trying to see, okay, if we have the same team in London two straight weeks, don't change up the team so now fans of different teams can go and show up and ruin their team. If we have the Jaguars two straight weeks, how many fans will we see now go to the game two weeks in a row? Sure, their opponent's different, right? Last week is the Falcons, this week's the Bills. But how many fans could we get to go to both games in a row? I think the NFL is testing to see if a franchise is viable in London. I hope I'm wrong. I think that we'll see it. I do think we'll see the Jaguars in London by, I'll say, 2030. At the end of the decade, permanently in London full-time. Now, Lugnut. <laughs> Lugnut in Oregon. Tremendous name there on Twitter. Does tweet at Ryan underscore Hickey number three. Good point here. He goes, what happens when the London Jaguars game is a primetime slot? Sunday night, Thursday night, Monday night football. Because London is five hours ahead. So right now it's 1.40 a.m. London time. What happens if there is a primetime game? Lugna makes a good point. I don't get how, I mean, you're not going to have a game, right, start for us at 8.20 p.m. Eastern or 5.20 p.m. Pacific and then start at 1.30 a.m. London time, local time. I don't know what they would do, to be honest, Lugna, in terms of how you would schedule these games and have them, quote, be at primetime. I guess you can't. That's going to be probably one of the caveats of, hey, you're in London. I guess the latest they could start a game is what? So 9.30 a.m. Eastern is the kickoff. I think it's, what do we say, five hours? So that's what? That's 2.30. 
London time is, is kickoff there. I guess you can, if you want to, you know, put it at 1 o'clock, at 2 o'clock, it could be the quote-unquote primetime game. Tie that still be at a decent hour for those going to the actual game. That could be, a, that's a drawback, but I don't think a drawback or a reason why the NFL would not move to London full-time is that they could not have primetime games on Thursday, on Sunday, on Monday. Again, I hope I'm wrong. I really hope that what I'm saying does not come to fruition and we do not see a team in London full-time. I'm not a fan of it. hate the London games. Don't think it's good atmosphere. Don't think it's good in terms of waking up early to watch. But you know the NFL. They don't care. They don't care about my viewing experience. They don't care about your viewing experience. They don't care about the player's experience in traveling across the Atlantic Ocean. The Jaguars are there full-time eight, nine times a year. Sometimes on a short week. They don't care. They'll tell you, suck it up. It's making us too much money. And you know the owners, right? If it makes money, in their minds, it makes sense. No primetime games? Okay, fine. We'll figure something else out. They're creative. That, well, it's a good point. I lug nut. And I guess you can now have primetime games in London, at least primetime games as we know them, with a five-hour time change. That I don't think will be enough of a roadblock to stop the move from Jacksonville to London. All right. This has grinded my gears for a while, and I've kept it internalized for a long time. But one massive pet peeve I do have is when people make things more complicated than they have to be. Right? Life is tough. Life is hard. The last thing anybody needs is to have a simple situation Amplified, made more difficult for no reason. And we all experience it. We all have friends. People want to do different things. People have certain allergies. Oh, we can go to this restaurant, but oh, so-and-so can't eat. So maybe we go here, but no one likes the food. Plenty, so many times, right? Friends make trying to make plans way more complicated than they have to be. At work, you have a work issue or, or something pops up. Sometimes you think, oh, this, here's the problem A, solution is B, let's just go from A to B, no problem, let's get out of here. But, I mean, anyone who works in the corporate world knows, nothing is ever simple as going from A to B. You got to go to A, well, let's get C involved, maybe D can help us out. Eh, you know, I think E actually experienced at one time this problem too, and let's go to F to make sure that they can improve what we're going to do, and let's then circle back to, to C to make sure that that now, you know, resolution is, is okay, and okay, now we can get to B. It's never a straight line. And it's never easy, and it's usually never time efficient in most jobs in the world. I don't know why. That's part of the frustration is nothing is ever as easy as it, as it has to be. And that, unfortunately, is also true in the NFL. Not overthinking it, simplifying it, just sticking to the phrase kiss. Keep it simple, stupid. I think it would save a lot of people a lot of headaches. And it would save a lot of NFL coaches from trying to explain, frankly, stupid decisions they have made. And that's why I am here to help out the coach. If you are a high school football coach listening right now, I have your back. If you are a college football coach listening right now, I have your back. And if you are an NFL coach listening right now, don't worry. I have a solution for you. You guys, I'm sure you know it. You're self-aware. You guys are classic Overthinkers. I am here on game day to help you out. I cannot scheme. I cannot call plays. I cannot design plays. I cannot coach up anyone. 
But what I can do is this. I can make common sense decisions. I can be your common sense coach. Because you know what? 95% of coaches need a common sense coach. And we saw on Sunday three different instances pop out right away where if common sense was used in a certain situation, I think the outcome for that team is different. Three times in the NFL, let's dive into it really fast here. Now, this first one here, to me again, is obvious. Matt Eberflus in Chicago. You are right now winless on the season. You are coaching for your job. Peter King was on 670 The Fan in Chicago this week saying, if it's ugly Thursday night when the Bears play the Commanders, Matt Eberflus could be fired as soon as Thursday night. He could be coaching his last game here. So this is a guy who's on the hot seat who's coaching for his job. Last Sunday, you were playing the hapless Broncos. It is 28-28. You have blown what was a 28-7 lead. Now that it's even, and now that your offense is moving the ball, there's three minutes on the clock. You're at the Denver Broncos 18-yard line. It is fourth down and one. Again, in a tie game, when you're coaching for your job, common sense says kick the field goal, Matt. Take the lead, and even though your defense has not been great, trust that they can, bare minimum, get this game to overtime. Allow only a field goal, but give your defense a chance to win the game for the first time this season. What does Matt Eberflus do? Goes for it. And not only does he go for it, he's in the shotgun, giving the running back, even though Justin Fields was having a career day, hands the ball off, blown up, short on fourth and one, Broncos get it. One play later in field goal territory. They kick the field goal. They win the game 31-28. Common sense says three minutes to go in the game at the Denver 18, a chip shot field goal. You take the lead. A first down there does not guarantee you can run out the clock and kick the field goal. No time left. You take the field goal when you are winless and coaching for your job. You take the lead with three minutes to go in the game any way you can. Common sense. Take the lead. What did Matt Eberflus do? Do the opposite. I am there for you, Matt. Give me a call. I will make sure you don't lose the next game. Ron Rivera. A few minutes later. Commanders down by seven. In Philadelphia. Big underdog. Coming off a game which they were embarrassed on offense by the Bills. Nine sacks, five turnovers. You are down a touchdown with Sam Howell at quarterback. What does Sam Howell do to his credit? Leads the Commanders right down the field. Last play of the game, you throw a touchdown pass. You throw a touchdown pass. Last play of the game in Philly, I guess right now the class of the NFC, you can either kick an uh, extra point and go to overtime, or you can say, you know what? We need one play from two yards. Let's go for the win. Let's go for the win right there. What does Ron Rivera do? Plays for overtime. Kicks the extra point. Why? Why are we doing that, Matt, uh, Ron? Go for two, go for the win. To me, it's common sense. And then after the game, Ron Rivera said, well, our offense was gassed. They were tired. You won the toss, Ron. You won the toss and your offense that was gassed was right back on the field. If you can't trust them to run one play to get two yards, how can you then, in the literally span of what, real-time five minutes? Think about it. You score, you kick the extra point, they go to commercial, they come back, coin toss, kickoff. 
That's literally five minutes worth of real time. You're telling me for an offense that was gassed, five minutes they're going to come back to life and have, you know, all of a sudden be rejuvenated? And now expect them to go bare minimum 50 yards down the field to get in field goal range, 75 yards to go score a touchdown and win the game? You need two yards. Two yards in a divisional rival's house in a team that is much more talented than you. Go take the chance for the two-yard line to win the game. You had the momentum. You drove right down the field to score the tying touchdown, Ron. Go finish the job right there. Common sense said you go for two. He played for overtime, and guess what happened? He lost. Matt Eberflus, you listen to me, you would have won the game. Ron Rivera, you listen to me, you would have won the game. Last one, this team got lucky. This coach got lucky. Got lucky twice. That luck's going to run out soon. That's Brandon Staley. Brandon Staley continues, for whatever reason, to think going for it on fourth down on the shadow of his own goal line when you are winning a game late in the fourth quarter, for whatever reason, he keeps thinking that's the right move. That's the best way for us to win a game. Two weeks ago against the Vikings, it's fourth one from your own 20-yard line. You're up by four points. You get stuffed. You get lucky because your defense gets an interception off Kirk Cousins in the end zone. But you really thought on fourth and one at your own 20-yard line with two minutes to go, that's the right decision? And again, you got lucky. You got lucky that a pass was tipped in the end zone and you were kind of right place, right time. Oh, here I go. Thank you very much. I picked this up and win the game. Fine. You get lucky one time. Lady luck. You know what they say? They'd rather get lucky than good. Fine. But then the very next week, to not learn your lesson, to be facing a fourth and one at your own 34-yard line, up by a touchdown, and again, you are holding on for dear life. You raced out to a 24-7 lead against the Raiders. The Raiders now are clawing their way back. Justin Herbert has a jammed left hand where he has a giant brace, and there was questions if he was going to come back into the game or not. It's not looked very good. You really think on fourth and one, with the Raiders offense having some momentum, and with your quarterback having a jammed left hand that he's gingerly holding and protecting, that a quarterback sneak on fourth and one at your own 34-yard line is the right move there. Now again, he got lucky. Aiden O'Connell throws a pick right at the goal line. But again, Brandon Staley, even when he gets luck, still almost squanders it by telling Asante Samuel Jr., who got the interception, basically, go down. There's still over two minutes left, and the Raiders had timeouts. Telling him, go down, and again, Vegas got the ball back now, now with enough time to win the game. But still, fourth and one at your own 34-yard line. And you say, let's go for it. That's the stupidest thing you could have done. And again, you got lucky on it. And you got lucky now two weeks in a row needing goal line interceptions. Back-to-back weeks to bail you out. Luck is not on your side that often. And it's going to run out quick. Common sense says you punt the ball there. I like aggressive coaching. I think too many times coaches do get conservative. There's also a fine line between aggressive and stupid. Going forward on your own 20, going forward on your own 34-yard line late in the game 
where a Vikings touchdown loses you the game because you're up by four. A Raiders touchdown gets you to overtime in a game in which your quarterback, again, is banged up and the Raiders' offense is gaining second-half momentum. That is the stupidest thing you could have done. Common sense has to prevail. More coaches need to have it. I do, it, it infuriates me to no end watching these games on Sunday and seeing these idiotic decisions happen and then the coach explaining like it's no big deal. Yeah, you know, yeah, we just went for it. You know, best, best play we had. You know, I, I don't regret it. No, you should regret it. It got you a loss if you're Matt Eberflus. Got you a loss if you're Ron Rivera. And again, it didn't bite Brandon Staley in the ass. But boy, oh boy, your luck's going to run out and going to run out soon. You are getting close. Common sense coach. That should be the latest hire on every single football staff in America. Too many coaches get too locked in, too analytical driven, whatever. Common sense needs to prevail more times than not. Speaking of which, when we return, I think it's common sense for the Bears to trade Justin Fields. Not at the end of the year, but now. I'll explain my next. It's Ryan Hickey on CBS Sports Radio.